This book is a, is a book on the Trinity called Traces of the Trinity. This is by Peter Lightheart. This one is really fun. There's a whole chapter on sex. <laughs> yeah, I want me. I could read some passages. Uh, <laughs> yeah, traces of the Trinity. <laughs> uh, also, we've talked about how. Eastern Orthodoxy tends to be the place where we get a lot of our Trinitarian theology. Uh, in the West, not a lot of work has been done on, on the Trinity, but this book fills that gap a little bit. It is by Robert Lethem, simply called The Holy Trinity in Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship. A, a good reference volume to have. I read through it cover to cover a long time ago. I can't remember much of it now, though, but uh, I remember it, that it was very helpful to me at the time. Here's another one, uh, Ralph Smith, Trinity and Reality, a good introduction to Trinitarian theology. And then um, here's one called The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. Awesome. If you read through my copy, it's underlined everywhere. Uh, Really great connections on what the Holy Spirit is doing in history and in Scripture. Uh, And today, what I'd like to do is walk through this book with you a little bit although I do it in, uh, a little bit out of order. Uh, Ralph Smith, again, Eternal Covenant. This one is how the Trinity reshapes covenant theology, and that's really the, what, what the theme of what I'd like to talk about is uh, today. Let's have a word of prayer as we get started. Our Father, thank you for the privilege again to gather together with our brothers here to uh, think through who you are. We're so grateful that you, take it, you have uh, revealed yourself to us and shown us um, who you are through the scriptures, and that you've given given us this great mystery and puzzle to solve through history. And we're still thinking about it and talking about it and learning about it uh, after so many centuries. We pray that you would continue to fill us with delight as we think about who you are in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In January of 2002, you know how long ago that was? 20 years ago. 2002 is 20 years ago. Uh, in a few months, it'll be 2022, right? There was a pastor's conference in uh, Monroe, Louisiana, the Auburn Avenue pa- Pastor's Conference that they do every year. And they entitled this conference The Federal Vision. Uh, and that became a major source of controversy and is still affecting us now. Uh, the, some of the speakers were John Barrich, Steve Schlissel, Doug Wilson and Steve Wilkins spoke at that. Uh, it's amazing that that was 20 years ago. Um, one of the topics that was developed from those lectures was the nature of what we know as the covenant. What, what, is, what is the archetypal covenant? And it, um, I should probably give you a definition. What, what, how do we define covenant? Different people have defined this in different ways. I think there's one way that we probably all remember from reading in in our introductory ideas to Reformed theology. O. Palmer Robertson writes a book called The Christ of the Covenants, and he's got this definition, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So that's one conception of the idea of covenant. I think that's a little bit off. James Jordan has probably a better definition of covenant, 
and Ralph Smith points it out in this book, that definition is this. It is a personal structure bond which joins the three persons of God in a community of life and in which man was created to participate. So the personal structure bond which joins the three persons of God in a community of life and in which man is created to participate. But there's still this question, what is the the paradigmatic covenant? What is the the overarching covenant? What's, What's the one covenant we should think of that helps us define all the other covenants? And traditionally, that covenant has been what's called the covenant of works. The covenant of works is what you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it talks about there are essentially two covenants. There's the covenant of works that God makes with Adam, and this covenant is conditioned upon perfect obedience of Adam. I'll read it in a second. And then, of course, that one fails, and God establishes a new covenant. The covenant of grace is the other covenant. Covenant of works and covenant of grace. Uh, so these two concepts, these two covenants of works and grace, they don't deny all the other covenants throughout Scripture. Of course, there are, there are many covenants, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. These covenants are not uh, completely done away with. They are rather thought of as administrations of grace, administrations of that covenant of grace, which the, the confession gets at that language too. Um, so it doesn't deny that those are covenants. But what we really need to do is examine this whole concept of the covenant of works as the paradigmatic covenant biblically. And that's what Ralph Smith does in his book. Is that really the place we should start for covenant? Because is, is there something in God that maybe could help us understand covenant better? So he starts out the book by walking through a, a historical um, perspective on different different theologians and how they have thought of God in covenant, the, the three persons of the Trinity in covenant with one another. And he keeps coming back to this idea of a covenant of redemption. And this is the idea that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided to come together and come to an agreement to save mankind. It's almost like, oh, mankind fell into sin. I guess we better do something about that. And it's a reaction that we, God is, is deciding to save mankind. So, of course, that's the problem with it is it's more reactionary than it is um, substantive of who God is. So examining this notion of the, the covenant, one of the, one of the big ideas that comes out of this is the notion of merit. Uh, merit, the notion of merit in Adam's covenant. Uh, the question is, is, is there merit in is Adam actually meriting something in this covenant? Is he earning something? Uh, and and in, if he is, in what sense is that happening? Is salvation by works? Was that ever actually a thing? Did Adam actually have to earn his way to salvation? So we need a better way to understand covenant. <clears throat> and here it is. <coughs> Pardon me. The intertrinitarian life should be our starting place to understand the concept of covenant. The inner Trinitarian life, 
between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should be our starting place to understand the concept of covenant. Because, so why? First, the covenant of works is inadequate. Two, uh, this, this covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit clarifies all the subsequent covenants. And third, this covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has implications for the modern church, for how we live our lives. We've explored some of these things already. By the way, if you've got questions and you want to jump in and ask something, or if you have a comment here or there, please feel free to raise your hand and participate in that discussion. None of this is intended to be outside of the scope of orthodoxy. I'm, <laughs> I don't want to be unorthodox. I, I like that statement that Roy made from Augustine at, at the beginning, this very humble thing like, you know, I want to be orthodox, so please call me back to orthodoxy if I tend to stray. So <laughs> uh, let, let's keep that in mind, <laughs> Roy. Yes. Yes, this is, um, there, there are, the argument is that this is flattening out the covenant. That uh, it's, it's removing this notion of two covenants. That's, it's in the confession that there are two covenants, works and grace. And this view is saying that there's something deeper going on here than that. And so the reaction to that is, well, you're just flattening out the covenant. It's almost an overreaction instead of engaging in conversation. So let's let's get into that first idea there. Uh, The covenant of works is inadequate. And it's inadequate in in three different ways. The first way it's inadequate is that it is antiquated. And this is all right out of Smith's book. Uh, it's It's antiquated because of that notion of merit Let's look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So far, so good. Uh, Paragraph 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So there's merit right in there. Uh, Third paragraph, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, 
to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture, this is paragraph 4, by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ and the testator to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Uh, Paragraph 5, the covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come. And I'll stop right there. It continues on. Uh, So that's that's what the confession says. What's wrong with the idea of merit? The idea of merit comes from an antiquated medieval scholastic approach to theology called voluntarism. Voluntarism, just to give you a quick reference to that, is uh, that God arbitrarily decides to make something meritorious. So God, in this instance, God decides to make uh, this, this certain kind of obedience, eating, not eating from a certain tree or a certain couple of trees, the basis for which Adam earns merit. So this, this, it, it introduces an arbitrariness into God's way of doing things, which can't be. That's not who God is. God is not arbitrary. He does not change. But it's in the confession of faith. Um, so in other words, the, the confession of faith is teaching that God randomly decided to make Adam not eating from the tree the thing that would merit eternal life for all mankind. Uh, so that's... That's a problem. Uh, so, that's, so it's antiquated in that sense. Number two, the second problem with this covenant of works being the paradigmatic covenant is that it is unbiblical. It conceives of covenant, the covenant that God makes with, with uh, the covenant of grace, you know, the covenant of redemption that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to, is a reaction to Adam rebelling. So it's post-creation. It, all, it requires the tree of life also to be forbidden. Because if Adam is eating of the tree of life, well, then he already has life. So in this notion of the covenant of works, the tree of life is something that Adam has to earn. And, and that's not even in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 2 does not forbid any tree except one from being forbidden from, from Adam, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This conception also requires the tree of life to be forbidden from him, which is unbiblical. <clears throat> it ignores the fact that Adam and Eve did not earn their way into the garden. How did Adam and Eve get in the garden? They were born there. That's where, that's where God placed them in the very beginning. They were in the most holy place in God's presence. They didn't have to earn their way into this place. They were there by God's placing them there when they were born. <laughs> so it's antiquated, it's unbiblical, and third, it is theologically inadequate. It introduces confusion into the concept of covenant. There is this debate, for example, um, is, is this covenant imposed on Adam? Or is the covenant an agreement? Did Adam agree to come into this arrangement, or is it imposed on Adam? 
Now, that's a logical fallacy. Uh, what, what logical fallacy is that? It's either this or that. Yeah, a false alternative or a, uh, a false dilemma, something like that. What was that, Jason? Yeah, so the, these are, right, that, that same one, false dilemma, uh, false dichotomy, something like that. So there's, the, you know, why do we have to choose between those two? Maybe, maybe there's another option <laughs> uh, that's possible. There is a better way. The covenant expresses, the covenant expresses the life of God. Think about it. How does God, how do the three persons of the Trinity relate to each other? They glorify one another. There is this notion of perichoresis. Uh, that's a great word where they're, they're mutually penetrating one another and glorifying each other. The way a three-note chord would, you know, you've got, you play the, one, the notes individually, but when you play those notes together, not only can you still hear the notes, but each of those notes becomes more glorified. They're glorifying each other. They're calling attention to one another and therefore making themselves more glorified. This is essential to man because man is made in God's image. Man is God's image, and so covenant is essential to humanity. It's not something that's added on to to Adam. This is who he is. We were made to live in relationship with one another and also with God. God is inviting us to live in in life with him. So that's my my whole first point. The covenant of works is inadequate in those three ways. Any questions on that or comments about that so far? Yes. Pastor Booth. Yeah, and and with good reason. You probably read this book. <laughs> yeah, so you read the book and then you're like, yeah, I knew I was right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, sir. That's a great question. It must be a different issue. I'll defer to you. Yes. It wasn't his earned 
Right. He could lose it for sure. Uh, and this is, you know, John Murray um, was very hesitant about calling Adam's covenant a covenant, even. He wanted to call it, it was an Adamic administration. But the language that he used, and, and Smith points this out in the book, is the, that uh, the language that, that uh, Murray uses to talk about the Adamic administration is very much in line with this idea of a covenant of works, even though he doesn't want to call it that. It was very interesting. So he had some good instincts there, but his, he couldn't escape his theology. So the second uh, idea here, my second point, is that uh, so this, this Trinitarian covenant, it, it clarifies subsequent covenants. It clarifies subsequent covenants. We talked about the definition of a covenant. There's the, uh, the definition that Robertson gives, which I think is an inadequate definition of covenant, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That means if it's not a sovereignly administered thing, that you can't really call it a covenant. But that, so that reduces, or that removes the possibility for many of the covenants in the Bible to be thought of as covenants. James Jordan's definition, I think, is much better. Uh, it's a personal structural bond, uh, which joins the three persons of God in a community of life and in which man was created to participate. That's great. It's, it's fundamentally gracious then. Covenant is the life of God. God lives in covenant always with himself. The three persons, as I mentioned, they're, inter- they're always uh, inter- they're pen- penetrating one another, living in this um, perpetual dance with each other, you know, as <laughs> Pastor Booth said, throwing olives at each other. Uh, <laughs> God, uh, Smith defines this as a covenant of love. I think that's a great way to put it. That's the biblical word for God's being, his essence. He, God is love. And so the covenant of love describes that uh, relationship. So involving man, then, this love becomes this gift. Bringing man into this, you're invited to live in this relationship with God. He's, he wants you to participate in this as well. As a, that thing by Robert Capon is really fun because it kind of gets at that thing. They're all having this big party and it's this raucous thing. And man is there too. And it's all very good and enjoyable. That's how it should be. So the covenant that God makes with, all the covenants that God makes with man are, are essentially gracious. That should be obvious to us because how are we saved? By grace. We're not saved by works. We can't earn our way into salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We are loved by God in that way. So what, should, what is our response? We love him. I would like some readers for me to, I need, I need some Bible verses read for me. Can somebody read John chapter 14, verse 23? John 14:23 Ian you got that? Yeah, that, that might help. John 14:23 Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our own home. Yeah, there, there it is. God has loved you, so your response ought to be, if you love me, then this is how your life will look. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Can somebody read that for me? Abel. 1, 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a weird verse. It goes, it's like, is that the end of a sentence, or is it part of the next sentence? <laughs> so the, he, the, the idea there is that here is, this is kind of what love is, that you live with Him in this obedience He's elected you. He's brought you into this relationship. First uh, John chapter two verses five and six. Somebody read that for us. Yes, Rick. Yes, please. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus. Awesome. So he's inviting you to live that way too. Uh, these, these all kind of say similar things. First John chapter four, verse nine. And the last one was first John chapter four, verse sixteen. Who can read both of those? Verse nine and sixteen of first John four. Yes, please. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his own son into the world so that we might live through him. Yeah. And 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. I love that. This is how you abide in him. It's through this love of him. Uh, it is true that obedience is not optional. As Pastor Booth said, Adam could lose that gracious place that he was placed there. So God is our king, right? Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He has requirements for the way we are to live. He is our king. So obedience is not optional. But the king is also our father. And so that brings about this gracious essence to that relationship. Marriage, I think somebody's already pointed this out, marriage is a great analogy for, um, for this relationship as well. Uh, marriage is a, a picture of love and commitment simultaneously. So, of course, the, the objection to this is that, well, that, that notion of covenant is just salvation by works. And that is a, a misunderstanding of what, what this idea is trying to say here. God brings a person in graciously, and now we have a responsibility to live as his children. Um, that's not a denial of salvation by grace alone. So all the biblical covenants are like this. If you think through, Noah found, found grace with God. Uh, and I, I didn't write down Adam. Adam was graciously born in the Garden of Eden. Abraham was given gifts and given promises. Moses is given deliverance from Egypt. And the Israelites, through Moses, are given the gift of the law. David is given this promise, I will make you a house. None of this is something that these people earned. And in the New Covenant is all of it in Jesus and more. There's my, that's my second point. So, uh, it, 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 
clarifies those subsequent covenants, this Trinitarian relationship that they have, this mutual love that the persons of the Trinity have with each other. Thoughts or questions about that? Okay, my, my last point is uh, it has implications. This covenant of love has implications for the modern church. If you think about it, what is worship? When we gather together, we call our worship service a covenant renewal worship service. God calls us, invites us into his presence. Now, right, And right away, we're confronted with our sin. Like, well, I don't belong here. Yeah, that's why we've given you Jesus. That's why God has given you Christ, so that your sins might be forgiven. You confess your sins. He hears your confession. He freely forgives you. He has completely forgiven you all of your sins. Now you can stand in God's presence. He invites you to this meal with him. You get to have a meal with Jesus every week. Uh, and that's that's the the essence of our worship. And then once we finish that meal, Jesus is like, now you go out there. You're now commissioned as one of my people to be my emissaries to the world. I'd like to read a section from Smith's book here. In... Uh, uh, Eternal Covenant, page 98 and 99. This really shapes our worldview, and a lot of things could, a lot more could be said about this, but I'm going to wrap it up after I I do this. Um, The Christian understanding of God as Trinity and every other aspect of the Christian life. God, God creates the world and rules it in and by his covenant. He creates man as his covenant image so that individual psychology, racial unity, the social dynamics are fundamentally and basically covenantal, reflecting the triune creator. Therefore, the Christian approach to history must, if it is to be true to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, be covenantal as well. Christians' understanding of the environment and the economy, geometry, law, politics, the subtleties of metaphysics, the nature of disease, the cause, the causes of war, and all else under the sun must be informed by the covenantal perspective. For it is as universally relevant as the triune God who designed and controls all things according to his perfect will. Cornelius Van Til's covenantal view of perichoresis includes the notion of the three persons mutually representing one another, an idea that offers a Trinitarian foundation for a Christian view of the arts. Um, I guess I didn't develop that one as much as I wanted to. So there's a, there's a lot that can be said about what what the what the implications are for for us in our lives with the Trinity. And maybe a good follow-up to this would be uh, to to get into the traces of the Trinity in Peter Lighthart's book. That would help you see all the different ways that the Trinity is is, um, is represented and pictured all around us, and the different things we do, and the different things we see in the world.
So those who hold to the covenant of works call this view that I've just described to you a dangerous view, that it's flattening out the covenant. And of course, they want, what they want to do with that is they want to protect this notion of that is a very important thing that, that should be protected, that Adam be the head of the human race. They want to protect the doctrine of original sin, and that's an admirable thing. The doctrine of original sin, we, that's, that has to be there. Adam represents all of us. All of us fell in Adam. When Adam rebelled against God, that was my rebellion too. All of us lost that fellowship with God. But the mistake is to think that a covenant of works is the only way to conceive of that notion. Uh, so uh, that, that conversation ought to continue if they would be willing to have that conversation with us. However, uh, it seems that conversation is often shut down and that those can't take place. Instead, they do trials and get people uh, thrown out of their denominations. <laughs> And conversations can't take place. So God is love. And we have now to just simply marvel at his beauty. And that's uh, that's my lecture. What questions do you have? What comments do you have? Pastor Booth. Just a more thought in of all the talks, but you close there talking about love. Um, Adam was given every paradise. Mm. And his obedience was to be not in order to merit something, but rather a reflection of his love for God. Yeah. He says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. This is an indication of a response to the gift. It is your love. Jesus, as the last Adam, uh, loved the Father perfectly. Yeah. It's not. I, I think we confuse merit mm. there. I, I'm not. Even, I'm not going anywhere with this except to say I think more focus on how obedience and love are reflections that are, are go together. So when Jesus says, "You love me, you keep my commandments," so the child loves them. The child can say, "I love my parents, but I rebel against them." Yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. That's a good point. But one of the unfortunate things that we lose in uh, the written explanation of these things is we lose the inflection of Jesus' voice. <laughs> he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's easy to see that as an imperative to obey. Instead of Jesus having said to his apostles, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It would be easy if love comes first before Right? But we don't get to see on the printed page how Jesus might have felt as he says. And so we have to fill that in for ourselves because of our relationship with him. That's a fun way to look at that. Roy. Theologically, 
It's uh, it's antiquated. And 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 inadequate, yeah. So the shorter catechism actually calls that same covenant covenant of life. Yeah, interesting. Thing in the catechism, it calls the the covenant with Adam a covenant of life. I can't comment on that. I haven't thought. Of it. Yeah, I, I, I could speculate. My my speculation.
But in our, in our days, definitely take the particular flavor of the Yeah, it's almost like that wasn't, it wasn't as big of an issue for them because it wasn't even really something that they were debating. But now it's become a hot topic for a debate, and we're looking at the confession trying to figure out what they thought, and it was almost like... Well, that illustrates the nature of theology and history, that oftentimes when something is stated, you're not, you haven't thought through all the ways this could be uh, interpreted and, and how it will be viewed over a period, over a length of time. And so what, what, anytime something starts out a certain way, it can work into multiple things, and that's why we have debates over what the Constitution means. Uh, you know, and so we have a Supreme Court that we want, those of us on a more conservative, so we want you to go back and tell us what the founding father meant when they said that, not what you think it means mm-hmm. now. So, um, I have one other follow-up question. Yeah. I think he's he's wrong on both counts. He's not he's not redefining covenant or trinity. He's he's uh, thinking through um, a better way to, to understand it. That our our conception of especially the covenant of redemption is perhaps not the best place to start when we think of the relationship of and covenant of the, the three persons of the Trinity. That's what, I, that's what I was thinking too. And then he says, unfortunately, Smith's revision works is at the expense of Orthodox theology. It purports tritheism. It purports tritheism and covenantal monism. Smith has done away with the historic formulations of Trinity to espouse James Jordan's views and has redefined covenant to set forth a view held by federal visionists called in Christian Christianese covenant faithfulness. There you go. That sounds like just a bunch of slogans. To me. So I just I take issue with him saying he's redefined the Trinity and redefined the covenant. It's not really what he's doing. No, I don't think he's doing that at all. That's, I wonder if those who say that, I mean, what are they? They're reacting to something. I mean, they don't want. There's something that really. It's a confession. He's he's suggesting that the confession is wrong, and well, that's dangerous. And they also, like I said, they want to protect that notion of original sin, and they think that this is dangerously attacking that, which it's not. coin phrase sola lingua, uh, which was that those, there's a, a large element of folks in our circles and reform circles uh, that are very guarded. May not, if, again, Westminster has gotten elevated in many lives, really to the level of you may not change a word. You may not. You may not say this in another way. You say it this way. You deviate in how you say it. 
then you're abandoning the thing. And it, it goes further than that, too. If you mess with the proof texts for this, if you suggest that the proof texts aren't the best proof texts, then you're also creating problems. There's a lot of reactionary things that go on anytime there's a hot controversy. One of the things I saw when I was the most controversies take 30 years to settle down enough that the next Ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and you know, lots of careers destroyed. Uh, I took my uh, copy of *The Baptized Body* by Peter Lightheart. I, I gave. I said, "Can you sign this for me?" He signed it, and he wrote, "I'm sorry this book caused you so much trouble." <laughs> Oh. Wow, $45. It's only 100 pages. Thanks for our time together, and then we can be dismissed. Father, we're so grateful again for our time to sharpen each other. Um, we pray that as we um, get to enjoy the rest of this weekend, that we will be looking for for you and the, the Trinity and, and the things around us and delight in them. Uh, we ask that uh, you prepare us to be with you tomorrow in our worship service. We ask for Pastor Booth that you please prepare him, help him to... Uh, Lead us into your presence in a way that would uh, challenge us and also reassure us of your love for us and encourage us in our godliness and good deeds. And please fill us with your spirit and strengthen us for the tasks you have for us next week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.